Well, first up in the news, uh, GM made a pretty big announcement today uh, here in Michigan that they are going to be keeping the Detroit Hamtramck plant open uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, flashback to this last summer, uh, GM had said, well, they're closing down a bunch of plants throughout North America. Uh, Hamtramck was slated for the axe because they were discontinuing both the Cadillac XTS and the Chevrolet Volt, both of which have died by now, and the plant has been idle for some time. Uh, but when politics gets involved and all these other things, uh, things can start shifting around. And the truth of the matter is, GM had some engineering talent, other things that were already invested in this facility, and as such, they're going to be spending $2.2 billion to retool the Detroit Hamtramck plant to become their flagship electric vehicle manufacturing center. Uh, what exactly does this mean in tangible sense? Well, uh, basically... Anything that's going to be coming from GM over the next, like, three to five years that's going to be electric, battery electric, so no no gasoline engines, no nothing, uh, will more than likely all come out of Hamtramck, just outside of Detroit. Uh, the big flagship vehicle is going to be the first one, uh, which will be the new... <laughs> Uh, excuse me, pickup truck uh, that's going to either be branded as a Hummer or a GMC product. Uh, we still don't know a lot about this pickup truck. We don't know if it's a medium size or a full size. Uh, we don't know what kind of range or power they're talking about. Uh, GM really seems to be coy on this effort because, at least my assumption is, <clears throat> they want to first know what Rivian's up to because they're really ahead of everybody there. Uh, I think they're going to play it safe with Tesla because as much as Tesla has their diehard fans, I really don't think the Cybertruck's going to have much broad appeal among normal pickup truck buyers. And then thirdly, uh, kind of connecting back to the first point, uh, what Ford's going to do with this Rivian partnership and how that's all going to work out. Uh, so this first electric pickup truck will be rolling out of this factory sometime in 2021. Uh, they, they, they're they pretty gung-ho about this project happening much sooner than later, which seems to imply, in addition to all this, <clears throat> that we're going to be seeing an electric GM pickup truck likely in some kind of, maybe not necessarily conceptual form, but maybe a prototype form, probably before the end of this year. So that's kind of interesting and exciting as well. Now, GM is also saying that they're going to have a whole slew of electric vehicle products releasing in the next three years. More than likely, we're going to have a new uh, Chevrolet EV uh, crossover, I guess. I don't know really what I'm going to call it. They're calling it like the, the Bolt EUV electric utility vehicle. What the hell that means, I don't know. But... Uh, <clears throat> GM saying that uh, that would probably be a thing, potentially. Uh, you know, you've got the Buick possibly being an electric thing, whatever the new electric Cadillac is. Most of these vehicles would all be assembled in this plant. So uh, that's exciting. It's very good. It's good for Michigan. It's good to for the UIW. It's good for the workers around the Detroit area. Uh, I'm very excited to see what happens, and I'm very happy that GM has decided to keep this uh, important and historic plant open once again. Now, sticking on the electric vehicle front, uh, Rivian held a event, an event, uh, 
Either way, they had a tent popped up at some kind of uh, electric vehicle thing out west in California this past weekend. And uh, at this vehicle demo, uh, people were able to look at very closely and crawl into the new Rivian R1S and R1T. The R1S being the SUV, the R1T being the truck. And uh, Rivian was talking a lot more about what the tangible details of these vehicles are going to be as we get well, I guess three weeks into 2020. Uh, Keep in mind that Rivian is saying that by the end of this calendar year, uh, you're going to be able to buy a Rivian vehicle. Where that's going to happen, I don't know. Uh, How that's going to happen, I have no idea. Uh, But Rivian is saying by the end of 2020, there will be pickup trucks and SUVs out on the road uh, that are, well, made by Rivian. Uh, But they did say specifically at this event that the first of the Rivian vehicles, the R1S and the R1T, are going to be cheaper than initially thought. What, again, that means, we don't really know. Uh, These vehicles are starting in, I think, the upper $60,000 range, if memory serves correctly. Give or take, the $70,000 window uh, that most high-end electric vehicles seem to be dancing around these days. Uh, That price point is going to be... Relatively class competitive, I would say, when you start factoring uh, in federal tax incentives, state tax incentives, and any regional ones that you might have as well. Uh, So think of a uh, well-equipped Silverado 1500 with uh, the 5.3, you know, maybe it's got the Z71 package, I don't know. You're going to be looking at the low $50,000 range. So even with just the federal tax credit with a baseline Rivian, which is probably going to be better equipped uh, than most Silverados, uh, you probably got a pretty comparative price right there. And you won't have to pay for gas. You won't have to pay for uh, major uh, mechanical repairs, no oil changes, no transmission fluid changes, nothing like that. It's it's just plug and go. And uh, <coughs> ultimately, that might end up being a very big deal. And it's one of the first times that I can really remember where a car company has announced a price and then went, ah, hey, ooh, whoa. Uh, actually, these are going to be cheaper than what you think. Uh, so that's pretty cool. That's pretty exciting. Uh, it's going to be interesting to find out how these cost savings uh, have emerged uh, for Rivian. Uh, I, I do wonder if, to some extent, the major investments from Amazon and Ford Motor Company have provided them with some uh, extra firepower to decrease costs and perhaps if those partnerships have maybe walked them into some scenarios for some better deal making. Uh, One other little tidbit that was announced at this event was that uh, these trucks have 7,776 battery cells in the battery pack but then they include one of the actual battery cells in a built-in flashlight that charges inside the vehicle uh, to make it a very lucky 7,777 battery cells in the truck and SUV uh, for, well, for your daily driving enjoyment. It's a seven, of course, being a lucky number for most people. So <coughs> pretty weird little tidbit. Uh, really curious to know what the battery life would be on that flashlight. You know, if it's got one of those individual cells inside the truck, I mean, usually they're a little bit bigger than a double A uh, most of the time. So uh, I imagine it would probably do pretty well considering the energy density that would be required for this truck and SUV uh, to get the range that Rivian is currently promising. And I guess 
one little side note that's also kind of popped in. I need to stop with the side notes, but one little thing jumped into my head uh, just as a moment as we're talking about Rivian and actually GM. Uh, Rivian showed off a thing a couple weeks back uh, with the hurricane turn or uh, that they, or is it the tornado turn? I forget what they're calling it. GM has used a similar name as well to describe this feature. Uh, more or less, Rivian is able to do this like tank turn in the truck. So basically the truck can turn in place uh, by rotating the individual electric motors in different directions. Uh, this is something that might come in handy on some uh, work sites, camping, whatever else to get your vehicle in the right direction. Again, how they're going to get this through different regulatory things, I don't know. Uh, but GM is saying that there is a feature uh, on the new Sierra 1500 and 2500 that can do a very similar thing, but it involves some kind of traction control defeat and like a full crank of the wheel and goosing it, and the car, the truck basically figures out a way to send the power to the right spot to turn the thing around. Uh, so I guess... I don't know what you want to call it, game set. I, not even a game set. I don't know sports in that tennis regard. Uh, love, love, is that the, that's tennis. Love, love, uh, Tesla, or not Tesla, Rivian and uh, GM there. So even though they might not have direct capabilities that are exactly the same, uh, some clever little bits of uh, tuning and other things can uh, provide similar outcomes. Now, uh, one other little Detroit-based uh, news story. I guess there's two more, technically. Uh, Ford. Ford has had a lot of issues since, uh, what was it, 2008, when the first Ford Focus in Fiestas uh, hit the market with the PowerShift dual-clutch automatic. Uh, if you haven't been keeping up with this story, uh, the gist of it is that this dual-clutch automatic was developed by Ford uh, right around the time of the uh, financial collapse and when gas prices were extremely high. Uh, what it boiled down to is that these automated manual transmissions were uh, cheaper to produce, uh, they were lighter weight, and they produced less drag on the engine uh, than what a conventional torque converter automatic would. And in the end, uh, the Focus and the Fiesta were able to achieve well over 40 miles per gallon with these automatic transmissions. Now, in practice, these transmissions were uh, not so great uh, because Ford really cheaped out on development costs. Uh, they really cheaped out on the tuning uh, and development time with these things. Uh, ultimately, these transmissions ended up eating themselves uh, after really only tens of thousands of miles of use. Uh, Ford initially had been saying that it was driver error. Uh, where people were not using them correctly. Uh, there, I remember seeing tags and other things uh, on cars being like, hey, when you shift from reverse to drive, uh, give the car a second before hitting the throttle to go. And I remember telling a friend of mine who had a Focus at that point in time, and she's like, oh, so that's why the car waits to go or doesn't get into whatever or like hesitates when I try to pull away from a stop sign? And I, I had to explain to them that, you know, think of it as you're driving a stick. You know, you need to give someone a second to get ready to go. And, you know, she ended up having to replace her transmission at least once. I don't know if she had to do more than that. Uh, but I have a cousin who also had a Focus uh, who had to replace her transmission twice already. So 
these cars aren't great if you get one with an automatic. Basically, stay as far away as you can from a Fiesta or a Focus with an automatic transmission from, a, what was it, 2008-ish, uh, or 2011, I think, for the Fiesta, and 2000, was it 9, 12? I forget what it was for the Focus. Anyway, they're all bad. They're just bad. And uh, Ford is basically lining up a settlement uh, for this to the total of $30 million. Now, keep in mind that that $30 million settlement uh, likely does not include any lawyer's fees, any other legal fees that might be coming out of there. And then, if each and every person who has purchased a Fiesta or a Focus uh, ends up becoming a claimant on this settlement, uh, which could be up to 2 million individuals, uh, you're basically looking at someone who's getting about the price of a sandwich at a medium-rated uh, sandwich chain uh, here in the United States uh, to pull from Jalopnik there, at least on that. It's uh, incredibly disappointing that that is the amount that's going in. A lot of these people were losing thousands of dollars on these repairs, uh, even though Ford did extend warranties and other things, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you weren't without a cost because there was also you not having a car or <clears throat> in many cases uh the the value of your used car has basically evaporated uh because of these mechanical faults and that is incredibly disappointing and it's incredibly disappointing that Ford still hasn't really owned up to it because these settlements really aren't going to solve the problems uh there was a huge story i think it was in the Detroit Free Press or maybe it was the Detroit News, I forget which one it was, uh, where basically they cracked into the whole history of this problem, and Ford just basically went, mm, I don't know, like, it's, it's hugely problematic that this is still happening, it's hugely problematic that it's coming out of Ford, a company that you would have thought had learned their lesson with the Firestone fiasco, oh, with the Pinto, many other things, and uh, unfortunately that just does not seem to be the case. So we will see what ends up happening here, but uh, a $30 million settlement just does not seem like uh, nearly enough for anybody who was affected by these bad transmissions. And then last up, uh, a little story on something that, uh, well, doesn't really affect me in the way that it used to, but nevertheless uh, might affect you, a potential new car buyer. Uh, Fiat Chrysler is announcing their new version of Uconnect, their infotainment system, uh, that may be debuting as soon as a model year 2021. Uh, the model year 2021 begins to roll around. This is uh, the fifth generation Uconnect system, and this is an all-new system that is based on Android uh, that is promising to have much better connectivity, much better speed, reactivity, uh, and better integrations with... <sighs> Amazon, Alexa, among other things. Uh, that definitely means that in the very near future, you would be able to chime in with a uh, Hey Alexa or Alexa or blah, blah, blah to get your car to do something or to say, Hey Jeep, Hey Chrysler, Hey Dodge, uh, and get the car to do something. Um, but really all that matters is that uh, we're moving on to the next thing. Uh, Uconnect in the past has been one of the better infotainment systems, I would say. Uh, they definitely piloted the, <clears throat> I'm going to say more usable fonts, button format, uh, that you, we've now seen copied by Ford with Sync and GM, uh, with, uh, what was the GM one? The MyLink and its various iterations. Uh, 
seeming to have kind of all gotten into the same space, I would still make the argument that Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis have, without a doubt, the most usable uh, infotainment systems out there. Uh, as much as BMW's iDrive has been historically quite good, not a big fan of it. Uh, it's it's all over the board for everybody, but Uconnect has always been a pretty strong one just because the user uh, interface was very easy to understand. Uh, this fifth generation one, I think, is going to move stuff closer to where Hyundai and Genesis are at, which is always a good thing. Uh, but also notable, this is the first of the Android platforms uh, that's going to be reaching cars in 2021. If I remember correctly, Volvo had developed a uh, Android-based system, and I don't know if they've rolled it out quite yet. The Polestar might be getting it first, and then Volvo's after that. <coughs> it's confusing, to say the least. Um... But exciting to see, nevertheless, that, uh, well, progress is progress. Now, if only somebody out there could get uh, Nissan, Toyota, and Honda on the horn uh, to get their systems uh, a little better developed. Toyota, Toyota's getting there. Android Auto's starting to roll out to more and more of their vehicles, uh, which is always a good thing. Honda just has a terrible baseline system uh, that really honestly is embarrassing and is only made usable by Android Auto and Apple CarPlay integration. And then lastly, Nissan and Infiniti, who really have been dragging their feet for the past, oh, I don't know, five or six years, uh, finally getting into the Android Auto and Apple CarPlay game, uh, making it standard on many of their new vehicles. So, yeah, interested to see what Chrysler's got. It's probably going to be another year or so until I see a car that's going to have this in there, so... Uh, once I do experience it, I'll be sure to let you know. So here in the car culture and, uh, well, car whatever segment, I wanted to talk about cheap electric cars. Uh, cheap electric cars are going to be uh, a thing I think we're going to be seeing a lot more from a lot of manufacturers over the next couple of years. Uh, as things continue to be relatively shaky when it comes to the economy, uh, in demands of millennial and Gen X, or not, not Gen X, millennial and Gen Z buyers uh, continue to shift more and more towards uh, more sustainable, more energy efficient means uh, electric cars are going to be a thing that people expect and want and demand to have for a relatively affordable price. Uh, one of the brands that's kind of getting on this train early, and we're going to... Mm, Maybe not necessarily fair to say early. I don't know. It's a weird way to kind of draw this distinction. Um, many, for many years, uh, $35,000 uh, MSRP has been known to be basically the baseline for where uh, a, a car becomes affordable for most people. Um, so whether you make, you know, $30,000, $45,000, $70,000 a year, uh, a $35,000 car is going to meet the needs for most people, um, especially if it's the size <clears throat> of a little bit bigger than a compact, but not quite a mid-size sedan. So think Tesla Model 3. Uh, that was the model that really kind of everything's judged by. And uh, some brands have kind of gotten on that, and they've done quite well. And other ones uh, have tried to start ducking under that price point uh, to get to a different class of buyer. Uh, Nissan, in particular, had been doing that with the Nissan Leaf, uh, offering one of the most affordable and most dependable electric vehicles for a pretty low price initially. 
Um, the current leaf, I think, starts right around $30,000 before any tax incentives kick in. Uh, and that ultimately makes base level leafs quite affordable. Um, but one brand that's trying to undercut the leaf now is Mini. Mini is a car company, of course, owned by BMW, based in the UK. They've been building funky little hatchbacks, tiny crossovers, and other things for, what, 15, almost 20 years now? Uh, Mini, you know, had pretty decent success when they first launched here in the U.S. all those years ago. Uh, they stuck to core markets, and then eventually they spread to everywhere, um, attached to BMW dealerships. And early Minis were... Uh, well, we're going to use the word whelming. They, they met a very specific criteria. People who are interested in driving, having a cool-looking car, you know, they did well with that. Uh, but as time continued to shift, uh, their buyers continued to shift, and many moved quite a bit more upmarket in their target demographic, uh, their age demographic. Uh, and in the end, where Mini is at today in 2020 uh, is with a crowd of buyers who are much more affluent and much older uh, than what they were back in the early 2000s. Uh, so this new Mini E, uh, I don't know if that's the official name for it, Mini Cooper E, Mini E, whatever they're calling it. Uh, this is meant to be a relaunch of the brand in the minds of young people. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, part of this comes because I was uh, watching YouTube with my significant other the other night. She brought up uh, a popular YouTuber that she likes a lot, and I don't really mind myself. Uh, his name is Alfie Days. He's been a YouTuber since the mid-late aughts. Uh, he's a very popular YouTube creator who's based in the UK. He's kind of shifted into this entrepreneurial businessy marketing whatever bullshit bro which I don't really care for but sometimes he has interesting content and uh, one of his newest videos talks about how he visited like three different countries within a couple of weeks uh, to tour uh, and partner with Mini to talk about some of their different vehicle vehicles that are currently available and to help launch the new electric car uh, that's going to be going on sale here in the United States very soon. This new Mini E, uh, well, it caters to the crowd that watches Alfie Days' content. Uh, this guy has a very loyal fan base of admittedly much younger followers than maybe some other YouTubers might have, but many of those followers are hitting the age of their late teens and early 20s when they are going to be considering buying a first-time car. And with you know, technology demands, environmental changes, so much else, uh, electric cars are in vogue. And it just really seems like a right time, right place move uh, to target these individuals, to be talking about Mini, to be talking about the things that they're doing, you know, in New York and in Shanghai and in London. Uh, or was it London or was it Germany? I forget where the European one was at. But uh, <clears throat> it's a good way to kind of drive eyeballs to see the product that you're talking about. And in the case of the Mini E, it is a pretty good product. Uh, early reviews, first drives of the car, I think were last week or the week before. Uh, and really the main takeaway is that this Mini is basically, well, it's a Mini. It's, it's the chassis that's currently available as we speak. Uh, but basically they are shoehorning the engine and transmission from the BMW i3, turning it 90 degrees and putting it on the front axle. And I believe it's the same battery pack that the i3 uses as well. I might be wrong on that. Uh, but it's of a similar capacity. And in the end, this Mini E is able to have about 
100 to 110 miles of range on a full charge uh, in optimal conditions, of course, uh, which is, you know, not bad for a modern electric vehicle. It's not great. It's not going after a Tesla Model 3. It's not going after uh, the long-range Nissan Leaf. Uh, but for somebody who wants to spend not a whole lot of money, uh, it's not a bad way to go. And really, that's the main thing. Uh, Mini is saying that the base trim version of this car, which comes with a pretty decent slew of standard features, uh, is going to start just under $30,000. Now, at that $30,000 price point, that does not include uh, the federal tax incentive of $7,500. So right there, <clears throat> you're at, what is that? Uh, basically, $22,750. Or sorry, no. Uh, math is hard. Thirty-three, or sorry, twenty-three thousand five hundred. Which you know is no, sorry, twenty-two thousand five hundred. Oh my gosh, math is hard, guys. Holy smokes! So twenty-two thousand five hundred dollars, right there, uh, with just the federal tax credit, which is very cheap. Then you go to a state like California, where you have a twenty-five hundred dollar tax credit. That is now a twenty thousand dollar vehicle. And then you live in a city like LA, where you've got another. What is it, $1,700, $1,500 tax incentive? Now you're below $20,000 for a brand new electric car with 110 miles of range that has a five or a six year warranty uh, that's going to be taken care of for quite a while. That becomes a very attractive thing for a lot of people. Again, like we've said many times before, for a car that has almost no maintenance costs. I mean, you have to do brakes, you have to do tires, you do have to do maybe once in a while, a fluid top-off. Uh, but generally speaking, you're not worried about alternators and timing belts and timing chains and oil changes and transmission fluid changes and all these other things. And <clears throat> in the end, you know, you're not buying gas. You're buying electrons. And electrons are much cheaper than gasoline is for most people in this country. And Mini is doing a good thing here. But the big question is, is 110 miles of range something that's going to be appealing to some people? And then, you know, I don't really have the right answer there because it is ultimately subjective. Uh, if you would have asked me six months ago when I was working in Holland and living in Grand Rapids, uh, 110 miles is enough to get from my house to work and back and still have some range left. But when you start taking into consideration that that 110 mile range in that Mini is going to be affected by colder weather... Uh, so you take 30% out of that, uh, that range starts to get kind of perilously close to not being accomplishable. Now, granted, I didn't have a regular commute there, uh, which kind of makes me an outlier in that regard. Other people I know who work within, let's say, 8 to 10 miles of their home, you're doing about a 20-mile loop a day, you're more than fine. You could bring your car to work, maybe your work provides a charger, maybe they don't, uh, you could charge your car at home again. You just throw it on the trickle charger and you're good overnight. <clears throat> and all said, you're saving hundreds and hundreds of dollars each year uh, by doing that kind of a thing. Now, the thing with the Mini is it's not only competing with brand new vehicles like the Leaf. Uh, the brand new Leaf, for only a couple thousand dollars more, ends up having an additional 40 plus miles of EPA rated range uh, out of the box. And... As much as that Nissan doesn't have quite as much standard equipment, um, what's well, a nice way to put this? I might be more likely to trust a Nissan Leaf uh, electric car long term 
compared to a mini uh, once that warranty runs out. If you're keeping it longer than that initial four to six years, uh, that mini might get expensive in different ways that you didn't exactly expect. Uh, <clears throat> also kind of to be considered there is that, uh, well, you can buy used electric cars for shockingly cheap prices all over the country, uh, whether you're in California, Texas, Florida, Michigan, Massachusetts or Washington, uh, it's it's all over the board with where with where those prices are at. So, I myself uh, not currently having a car, but of course always looking. Uh, I've started looking at cheap electric vehicles. I, I mentioned how uh, the new apartment complex that's being built close to us uh, does have uh, included single stall garages that do have uh, electric ports in there. Uh, when I say electric ports, it's 120 volts, so don't get too excited. Uh, but the leasing office talked about how uh, they would be willing to put in a 240 volt uh, socket if we needed it to charge our electric car. Uh, that is a pretty exciting thing that you do not see very often in many places around here. And uh, at least for me, if we were to move, that changes my car options quite a bit uh, compared to where I'm at right now. <coughs> so thinking of that, uh, I started doing some digging on what Leafs are good to get. Uh, basically, the consensus online, without going into too many details, is that the early Leafs from 2011 and 2012, uh, they were manufactured in Japan, and they use a battery that is not very uh, temperature resistant. Uh, by that, I mean it basically has no thermal management system whatsoever. So uh, in the summertime, when it gets quite hot, thinking of Michigan here is a good example, uh, if you live in an area of the country that gets, you know, well above 90 degrees Fahrenheit during the year, uh, these batteries suffer significant losses of uh, power and range, and that's because batteries get hot, and the hotter batteries get, the less effect or efficient they are, and it turns into a big old mess. Uh, on the flip side of that, you also have issues with cold temperature. Like I said, uh, you can expect as much as a 30% loss in range uh, when temperatures begin to dip below uh, the 50s when you start having to run the heater on occasion. And uh, that really has a big impact on uh, overall performance. So these early leaf batteries uh, in those temperature flexes that we get here in Michigan might not survive very well. But if you live in a temperate part of the country, uh, thinking of, you know, a place like San Francisco, California, that stays in the, uh, what, upper 40s to like the low or low 80s most of the year, you're going to be pretty good there. You're going to have pretty good survival rate, but around here, not so much. Uh, Nissan actually is actively replacing a lot of batteries in these cars. Um, I think it's like if when the battery life indicator dips below nine charge elements, uh, it's, a, it's available under some kinds of warranties to get a battery swap. Uh, but it is not always guaranteed that you get one of the newer style batteries uh, that they rolled out later on. That does eventually mean, of course, <clears throat> that the 2013 uh, to 20, I think it's 17 was the last model year. Uh, cars are much, much better. Uh, now, not all of the 2013s got the newer battery, but most of them did. Uh, this is also when, at least here for North America, manufacturing transferred from Japan to Tennessee. And there haven't really been any issues with quality in that changeover, uh, but uh, they began to employ these different batteries. Now, the 2013 models are kind of 50-50 in what they get, uh, but the 14 and 15 models started to roll out what they call the Lizard battery. Um, 
what makes it a lizard. I forget what how that all works out. But basically, these batteries um, have a much more uh, sufficient heating and cooling system available to them that, you know, help out a bit. Now, these aren't going to quite be to the level of what, say, a Chevy Bolt has or an Tesla Model 3 or a Tesla Model S has, because uh, keep in mind, the Leaf was meant to be an affordable electric car from the outstart or the outset, and uh, these cars, you know, they're at least going to do the job. Uh, the other important thing to note for the later 2013 and up models is that the SV and SL trim levels include a heating element uh, that is much more efficient, uh, that basically runs from the battery to the cabin of the interior. They call it a heating tube. Uh, this heating tube is what's going to be drawing heat from the battery to heat the cabin of the vehicle, kind of in the same way that uh, the engine coolant in a gasoline car is used to heat the cabin of most cars these days. Uh, that system uh, just really isn't asking the battery to do quite as much to heat the car. It's much better. And so here, thinking again of Michigan, where it gets quite cold uh, during the wintertime, uh, a 2013 and up, SV or SL is going to be a better way to do it. So I've been looking 2013 and up SL SV trim, uh, you know, looking for those heated seats and the heated steering wheel uh, prices kind of are all over the board, depending on where uh, the mileage is at uh, the overall condition of the vehicle is at. Um, it's the one thing I would say is battery condition, but that's not always easy to tell in some of the advertisements. Um, you might have to go take a look at the car if it's on a dealer lot, see if they can plug it in, charge it, and take another look at it again to see if it's got the full 12 slot indicator uh, done up. Uh, if I remember on the first gen lease, it's the far right indicator. There should be two red dots and then uh, 10 white ones. And so if all of those are good um, and the other uh, bars to the left of that are fully charged, you've got, a, you've got an A-plus battery. Um, if you have it fully charged on the left set of indicators, uh, and then the right one is like, you know, 11, 10, or 9, or sorry, 11 or 10. You know, you've got a battery that's degraded, but it's still usable, and you're not going to see incredibly significant degradation. Um, but if you're 9 or less, uh, basically it's a no-fly zone. That battery needs to be replaced uh, by Nissan. Uh, presumably, if you're buying it from a used Nissan dealer, uh, they're probably going to be keeping a pretty good eye on that. Uh, but some other places might not know how that whole system works, and you might have to work out a deal with them uh, to get stuff figured out. <clears throat> but uh, looking at just Carvana, which maybe isn't the best thing to look at, um, but I found, you know... 2015 and 2016 models with like 30 to 50,000 miles on them in pretty good condition. When I say the words pretty good, uh, it's important to remember that Nissan interiors degrade quite a bit um, compared to a Honda or Toyota. The build quality just isn't quite as good. Uh, but with slightly degraded interiors, a few blemishes on the outside, you're looking at like 40,000 miles. Uh, you're looking at like 11 grand, 11 to 13 grand. Uh, for a pretty well-kept Leaf, and that's that's a pretty good deal because these cars still do, what is it? I think they're EPA rated for like 80 or 90 miles of range. Later ones got above 100, uh, I think after 2016. So, and that's, I guess that's the point I'm getting to. That's where the rub is at. If you're looking at buying a brand new Mini Cooper E or Mini E or whatever the hell they're calling it, uh, you know, you're still looking at 22 grand. Worst case scenario, you're looking at 22.5 uh, for the price of the car. Is a Mini E 
at 22 grand with a warranty better than a used Nissan Leaf for, let's say, 15, 12 grand, 10 grand or less for most people. Uh, they're going to be using these cars, you know, on a daily basis, but not traveling too far. And that's something where, you know, you just kind of have to ask yourself what exactly you want to get out of the car. Um, those Leafs aren't going to have a lot of the modern infotainment stuff uh, that newer cars have today. The Leaf in particular uh, has today. Just the same, it might not have some of the interesting build quality and refinement that a Mini would have uh, versus a Nissan. And, you know, you're going to be getting what you pay for. Uh, but uh, that's that's not exactly... An easy decision to make, I guess is a good way to put it. I think long term, you're probably going to be saving a lot more money buying the Nissan than you would the Mini just because that depreciation is already going to be mostly gone by the time you get that Leaf. Uh, if anything, in some instances, as people have been reporting, at least from the UK, uh, these uh, Leaves and Renault Zoes uh, that have been pretty well taken care of are actually getting to the point now where they're Maybe not necessarily appreciating, but they're remaining steady in their valuation, uh, which is almost like appreciating. Uh, and so you could buy one of these things, drive it for a year, you know, put whatever miles you put on it. Maybe you have to do a little bit of maintenance, but in the end, the car is worth almost the same amount of money. And that's a good deal as well. So I guess if it were me, <coughs> I might be inclined to get the Nissan. That's just me. Uh, but if I'm thinking of somebody like my SO... And she is actually interested in this in this possibility later on down the road. Maybe the Mini is the better way to go uh, long term. So be curious to hear what you think about that. Uh, you can always uh, drop us a line here on Anchor.fm. That's uh, at Anchor.fm slash salvage title. I haven't asked people to do that in a while. But if you've got thoughts, I'd be curious to hear where you're at. Because I think this is going to be a thing that's going to start popping up a lot more. You know, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Motor Week, you know, talking about... Uh, used electric cars for a teenager. I don't remember what episode it was. It was a while ago. Uh, and they mentioned that a used Leaf, you know, depending on what kind of condition it's in, you could probably get for seven or eight grand in some parts of the country. And these cars can only do like 60 to 80 miles of range. And so like the point was basically, one, it's going to cost you almost nothing to maintain, which is always a good thing. Two, it's new technology, so your young driver is going to be used to the continued electrification that we're seeing uh, throughout the industry. And then three, if your teenager wants to get in trouble, they don't have very many miles that they can put under the car in one night uh, to get in trouble. So uh, that's always an interesting thing as well. And I never would have thought of it that way uh, until one of the parents on the show uh, had talked about it. So yeah. Oh, we'll kind of keep you updated as things go along. You know, there's always the BMW i3. That's another one I really, really want. But, uh, you know, the i3's got a little bit more uh, cost when it comes to uh, annual usage than other ones just because of the weird way that the car is set up. But we can get into that at a later time. So curious, you know, if you guys have any thoughts about what to get here. But, uh, yeah, interesting stuff to think about. Well, before we get ready to wrap everything up, I did want to touch on one 
last thing, which I almost forgot to talk about in this show, uh, which was the 24 hours of Daytona. Uh, We just came off the beginning of racing season here in North America uh, with the 24 hours Daytona this past weekend. And as much as I hate the fact that I didn't get to watch it, uh, there were some interesting things to kind of pull out of this race uh, as we head on into the rest of the year. Uh, The big news, of course, before the race even started is that IMSA and the ACO, uh, which I don't remember what that stands for, but basically uh, IMSA, which is the North American Racing uh, Association, uh, is teaming up with the European Racing Association to standardize uh, a new uh, racing series for the 2021 racing season. Uh, Basically, it's going to kind of merge together the supercar standard uh, from uh, Le Mans and the European stuff uh, with IMSA's uh, DPI class, the Daytona prototype, whatever I stands for. (laughs) Uh, They're going to merge these two classes together, uh, which basically means that DPI cars next year should be able to run uh, at Le Mans uh, in the same way that the supercar class vehicles from Europe should be able to run IMSA Uh, for the rest of the season here. Uh, This is exciting news, both for manufacturers and for teams. Uh, This is going to really open up American motorsport to European influence. This is going to open up European motorsport to American influence. Uh, Really what it boils down to is I'm incredibly excited to see, presumably, a Cadillac-powered race car back at Le Mans, hopefully doing very well because Cadillac made quite a show out of this year's Daytona 24-hour race. Uh, spoilers, I suppose, uh, but the Konica Minolta team, uh, headed by Wayne Taylor, uh, won back-to-back again at, uh, at the Daytona 24-hour race. That means I think Kamui Kobayashi is now a two-time winner. Uh, this is a pretty big deal because, well, uh, Good for him, the former Formula One driver. That's awesome. Uh, But also that, uh, you know, these guys uh, really had a crazy race. There was a lot of stuff going on with their car. Um, There were a lot of weird things happening at this track. Uh, Acura, in particular, had a pretty tough event uh, crashing their car. I think the Acura finished third overall uh, in this race. I might be mistaken. I didn't memorize the whole results. Mazda if I remember correctly, also finished second in the race, uh, which just marks, I think, the first time that Mazda has finished the race since 2008. Uh, so a pretty big deal. Uh, this is the best finish that Mazda has had in IMSA in a very, very long time. Um, and so it's kind of coming to a head, at least for Mazda, uh, that their engine platform is nearly as reliable as it needs to be to win a race, uh, even if they didn't quite pull it off. Uh, now, in the other racing series... Uh, We did have the debut of the new C8R Corvette. Uh, A lot of interest was riding on this car simply because it's the first mid-engine Corvette. Uh, It was thought that this was going to be much more competitive against Porsche, BMW, and many other cars out there on the track. And, uh, well, you know, Corvette didn't win. They didn't lose. They just, you know, didn't do quite what I wanted them to do. Big thing happened with car number four. That's the car I typically root for out of the two twin GM-backed vehicles. Uh, car number four had a mechanical fault. They ended up being like 300-some-odd laps, laps down 
by the end of the race. Uh, they ended up declaring car number four as a development car uh, for the rest of the race, basically testing and tuning different setups uh, as teams begin to prepare for Sebring. Car number three, on the other hand, was in the mix uh, for a podium finish uh, basically the whole race. I think they ended up finishing third, if I remember correctly. Again, I probably should have checked these results before talking about it. Uh, but BMW, with their M8 uh, car, they just really dominated the field. They were very fast uh, on the high banks. Um, th these cars just plowed through the competition. Uh, Porsche also had their new 911 RSR debuted. Um, the RSR, of course, uh, migrated to a midship engine mount design uh, so it was no longer rear-engined anymore uh, but this whole platform basically gives the Porsche at least compared to the BMW much faster through the curves like it was crazy how much faster the Porsche was able to gain on the BMW each time through the curvy sections uh, at the beginning of the of the track layout but once the thing got on the high speed banks the BMW would almost always be able to pull away a little bit uh, before the Porsche got right back on its tail uh, in those corners so cool racing to watch happen uh, and it will be interesting to see where the development gets on the Corvette. Uh, you know, you can't always win the first time out. Uh, that's not, shouldn't always be expected. I'm a little hurt, of course, that Corvette didn't win on their first, first run, but, uh, <clears throat> definitely excited to see what Team Corvette does this season. Uh, definitely excited to see this battle between Porsche and BMW, uh, for who runs the roost. Uh, and definitely excited to see what happens in the GTE class. Uh, is it the E or the D? I always get it. Anyway, the, 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 the lower class, the GT3 cars. Um, big efforts from Audi and Lamborghini. I believe in the Lamborghini ended up taking first in the class. I think Audi finished third. Uh, Lexus had been doing a very good showing along with Acura for most of the race as well. Uh, a lot of people really happy with the performance of, uh, what's his name? The M&M's guy from NASCAR, Kurt Busch. There we go. Uh, that he was uh, racing quite well. Um, this was his first run in a touring car, I believe. Um, but overall, you know, just a really competitive series of stuff. And really excited for the future of this motorsport. Um, that means Formula One testing is right around the corner in February. That means that Formula One starts in March. That means that Sebring is around the corner. That means NASCAR is around the corner. It's all coming back to me, baby. I'm very, very excited. So with all that in mind, guys, uh, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I am your host, Brett Eslake, and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash YSSMAN. And you can follow along with episodes of this podcast at anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, we do these episodes kind of on an as-needed basis if there's interesting news stories to talk about or, uh, well, however we feel. <coughs> we do have the car show coming up in Grand Rapids this weekend, hoping to go down there probably on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Who knows what day we'll end up choosing. It depends on my work schedule here. And uh, we'll take a look at some of the new cars. Probably won't be able to drive anything because typically they do, don't do that kind of stuff at this auto show, but uh, getting up close and personal with them is always a good thing as well. Uh, yeah, as far as anything else happens, guys, uh, we'll see you when we see you. And until then, guys, have a safe, wonderful week. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.